Scripture reading today is from Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who will not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge as his own destruction. But I am like a, a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever, because you have done it. And I will wait for your name, for it is good, in the presence of the godly. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Mosaic. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Tina Miranda. I'm one of the deacons here, and I am super excited and privileged to be here with you this morning, sharing in the middle of our our three-week series, looking at the story behind the Psalms. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the circumstances that led David to write the words that we just heard from Psalms 52. And you might have guessed from the opening verses that the story isn't going to be a pleasant one. But that does not mean that it does not have the ability or the power to speak truth to our life. So the story I'm going to tell you about is a story about a prowler, a psalmist, and a priest. And no, they did not walk into a bar. This is not... Not a joke. Um, in fact, uh, the, the circumstances are pretty unpleasant. So I got to tell you up front that things are going to be a little rocky for a while this morning before it gets good. But I hope you hang in there with me. I want to consider each of these three characters in turn and what we can see from them and what it reveals to us about David's story, God's story, and how that informs our own. And before we go on, I want to make sure that you understand that when I, I use the word story and I say characters, I'm talking about real people. Um, They're real people, uh, real events, um, and real lives. So let's jump into the story. The events take place, and if you want to go read it, it's in 1 Samuel, not right now, um, 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. We're going to start in 21, but before we do that, we're going to back up just a little bit um, to get an idea of what's going on in David's life at this time. We're going to back up to the place where he's out in the pasture, he's minding his own business and his father's sheep, um, and he's interrupted by the prophet Samuel who comes to anoint him as the next king over Israel. Now, Israel already has a king at this time. His name is Saul. uh, But after repeated acts of disobedience, God has rejected Saul and has told Samuel to go anoint a new king. God also told Saul through the prophet Samuel that the kingdom would be taken from him and it would be given to someone else, someone better, a man after his own heart. And so that's why David is going to, is being anointed and he's the king. Now, sometime later in David's life, um, he has this epic battle with Goliath. And then he eventually assumes a position of prominence uh, in Saul's army. He's a very successful military commander. And chapter 18 tells us that David had great success in everything he did because the Lord was with him. And the people of Israel began to notice his success, but so did Saul, who was becoming increasingly more jealous 
and paranoid about his predicament. You see, at some point, Saul begins to put the pieces together uh, and realize that David might just be this better man, the man after God's own heart. Verse 12 of chapter 18 tells us that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So y'all can see where this is going. It's not going to end well. Saul becomes enraged to the point that he makes multiple attempts on David's life and he's forced to flee. And this is where we find David in chapter 21, right? He's on the run, and he's being chased by a paranoid, jealous, tormented king. So where do you go when you're in trouble? Where does David, where does a man after God's own heart go when he's on the run? Well, he goes to church, right? Amen. Um, And church at this point in Israel is in the city of Nob. It's where the tabernacle is that houses the Ark of the Covenant. It's where a lot of the priests live. And David goes there and he asks for help from the high priest, Ahimelech. Now, verse 1 tells us that Ahimelech comes out to meet David, and he's trembling. All right, David is celebrated throughout Israel. He knows who David is, but he's a little disconcerted and possibly a little anxious about the fact that David shows up on his doorstep alone. He doesn't, he's not commanding any men. He's alone, and he's probably looking a little worse for the wear, travel-weary, because he's on the run. And so he says to David, he's like, what are you doing here, right? Where, where are your men? And David, in one of my favorite parts of the story, he's like, yeah, so I can't tell you that's classified, right? I'm on this super top secret mission for the king, and my men, um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to meet up over there. So basically, he does not tell Ahimelech the truth about what's going on. And he asks for bread. He's like, so do you have any bread? Five loaves would be good. Um, And then he's like, oh, and by the way, if you happen to have a spirit or a sword, that would be helpful too, because I kind of left on my super top secret mission in a little bit of a hurry. Now, Ahimelech, who is being, he's a a right priestly high priest, and he wants to help. Um, But the only bread that he has is holy bread, and the only sword that he has is actually the sword of Goliath. All right? But because he's a good priest, he gives them to David. He wants to help out. So I think already we can see the message is clear that things are bigger and better in church. Right? You get some holy bread. You get the sword of Goliath. Now, I know that people say that about Texas, but just think about what that means for us who are in church in Texas. That means it's, it's going to be amazing. Amen? Anyway, David continues to run. Now, at this point in the story, we have met the psalmist, who we know is David, because we're smart like that. All right? And we've met the priest, who is Ahimelech. But the question is, where is the prowler? And the prowler, he's there. He's doing, he's, he's the place that any good prowler would be. All right? And he is lurking. All right. So if you were to go read this in the Bible, you would see that the, the, this event between Ahimelech and David is recorded in the first nine verses. And in verse one through six, it's where David approaches Ahimelech and they talk about the bread and I don't only have bread, I only have holy bread. And that's one through six. And then over here, you have eight and nine, which talks about the sword and like, I need a sword. Only sword I have is Goliath. And he's like, that's the best thing ever. Why don't you give that to me? All right. All right. But squeezed in the middle of there, is verse 7 that records what seems like this random, insignificant detail. And it says, Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doag the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. Y'all, this is like the literary equivalent of a photobomb. 
okay? So if we were taking a picture of what was going on here, instead of writing it down in words, Doag would be that super creepy guy in the background of the picture that you didn't know what there was there. Except instead of spoiling the picture, he's about to spoil the story. Now, notably, Doag does not run straight to Saul and say, let me tell you what I saw. Right? Um, in keeping with his character, which we're going to see later, he continues to lurk in the background of the story. And he's waiting for the right moment, meaning the most opportunistic moment that he can, all right, to share this information. David continues to go on the run, and he goes to a couple different places. At some point, he meets up with his family. And then slowly, men begin to gather around David. They're, they're sort of disillusioned, disenfranchised, desperate men. Um, and David slowly over time builds a small army of desperados. Now, that leads us up to the second part of chapter 22, where we come back and we find Saul is holding court uh, with his officials on a hill under a tree with a spear. I hope you guys can picture this because it's, it's a very clear picture to me of, of this happening. And he's ranting to his men about David. So he's just learned that David and his men have been spotted. And he's basically accusing his officials of siding with David over him and hiding David and his whereabouts from him. And he's angry and he's trying to appeal to them, to their loyalty, to be, why would you do this? Why would you side with him over me. Is he going to make you rich? Is he going to give you vineyards and put you in charge of, you know, make you a military commander in charge of thousands, implying that Saul can, but David can't? And I want you to see here that he's appealing to these men for loyalty, but he's not appealing to their sense of decency and honor. He's appealing to the lowest form or the lowest or the basest part of human. He's appealing to their greed, all right, their lust for power and money. And who do you suppose steps forward? Doag, right? He's the one who comes forward and is like, you know what? As a matter of fact, I saw David, right? He's waited for this exact moment where he can leverage the information that he has for maximum selfish gain. And he does that, all right? And he tells him and he says, you know what? I saw uh, David and I saw Elimelech and he inquired of the Lord for him and he helped them. And Saul is so mad that he summons the priests. And then he tells them, and, the, and Ahimelech comes and obviously justifiably protests his innocence. He has no idea that Saul hated David. He had no idea that David was on the run from Saul. And so he's maintaining his innocence, but Saul is paranoid and jealous, and he doesn't care. And he turns to his guards, and he says, I want you to kill them. Not just Ahimelech, all of the priests. I want you to kill them all. This is such an unholy, heinous act that even Saul's guards refused, right? They would rather risk the wrath of a deranged king than the wrath of the almighty God. But guess who steps forward? Guess who volunteers, right? Our prowler who's been working. And Doag steps up and says, I'll do it. And he does, right? He kills 85 priests, but he's not done. Then he goes to the city of Nob and he puts to death every man woman, and child in that city. One son of Ahimelech manages to escape, and he runs to David, and he goes to David, and he tells David what happens. And David is obviously devastated, and he tells him, I have caused the death of all the persons in your father's house. David's world is crashing around him. 
He may be the heir apparent, a military hero, and a giant slayer, but here he is on the run alone, isolated from his friends and his family. And if that wasn't enough, right, now he's got the weight of an entire murdered city on his conscience. All right? I think the question today is, what do we do with that kind of story? Right? Where do we go with that? Well, we're going to start where David did in Psalm 52 with the prowler. All right? And to toss out a literary reference here, the prowler is the antagonist in the story. Right? He's the enemy. And in the opening four verses, David describes Doag as deceitful and a lover of evil, someone who is out to deceive and destroy. Now, why does that sound familiar to us, right? It sounds familiar because over in 1 Peter 5, 8, right, we are told to be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then in John 10, 10, we're told that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And finally, in John 8, 44, We're told that he, meaning Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. In order to make sense of this story and to see how it fits in God's story and informs our own stories, y'all, this morning, we need to know and understand and accept that we have an enemy. All right? And he's been there from the beginning. He is the snake in the garden that was bent on deceit and our destruction. Now listen, I know you didn't come to church this morning, right? To hear about the devil and demons. There are like an infinite number of Bible topics that are more entertaining, interesting, and pleasant to discuss than the devil, all right? But let me tell you, ignoring it doesn't make it go away, all right? You just ask David, right? Doag was lurking until he wasn't. And then all of a sudden, there's 85 dead priests and an entire city of people dead, All right. Something that David said, in fact, the first words out of David's mouth when he was told about what happened are really telling. He said this in 1 Samuel 22, 22. He said, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. He was devastated and he was appalled by this news, but he wasn't entirely surprised. All right. He knew that evil was lurking and so should we. That's why 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, right, to be alert and sober minded. We are not going to be able to make sense of our story or this story or God's story until we see that there's an enemy in there. Now we had an, our own eye opening moment in our family. I have a son uh, who's nine years old, but several years ago he had just turned two years old. And we had just put him down to bed. He was just learning to talk and starting to put sentences together. And we'd put him down to bed. And it was some time later that we heard him crying hysterically. Now, we don't have those fancy, like, video monitors that everybody has these days. We just had those handheld walkie-talkie things. Anybody else besides me know what I'm talking about? All right. And now, at the time, it was very alarming, one, because of how he was crying, but two, the fact that he was crying. When my children were young, they weren't big criers. They have totally since made up for it. Um, but at the time, um, it, was, it was alarming. And I ran in there, and I scooped him up, and I picked him up, and I held him, and I was trying to calm him down. And I said, buddy, what's wrong? And he said, mama, mama, where'd God go? He was two years old. Y'all, I knew about spiritual warfare. I've studied it. I've even taught it a little bit. But nothing could have prepared me in that moment for the fact that the enemy was already waging war against a defenseless two-year-old. 
Now listen, I'm not here trying to scare you this morning, but I am trying to keep it real. And I think if we're going to make sense of our stories, we need to understand that we have an enemy and every one of us in here has a target on our back. All right. He is out to derail us from our destiny. And when I talk about our destiny, I'm not talking about what you were meant to do. I'm talking about who you were created to be. Every one of us in here were created in the image of the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, ever-present God. And he created us to share his glory with us and then for us to share that to the world. And if there's anything right? That our enemy wants to do. It is to keep us from realizing who we are as children of God. Because if we ever figure that out, y'all, if we ever grasp what that truly means, he knows that there is nothing he can do to stop us. And there is nothing that he can do to stop the glory of God from being spread throughout the whole earth. So let's start this morning by recognizing, as David did, that there is evil lurking in our story. And let's heed the warning of the story in the one in 1 Peter and be prepared. Dig into your Bible. If the enemy is a deceiver, your Bible is truth and there is so much in there. And so to steal a tagline from a a famous uh, public service announcement, the more you know, right? You just can't go wrong by reading your Bible. The more you know, the more armed you are against this. But I don't want us to overcorrect. So I'm going to pause here for a second and just let you know that not every bad thing that happens to you is of the devil either. Okay. Amen. All right. So sometimes bad things just happen. So first Peter tells us to be alert, but it also tells us to be sober minded. All right. So there's going to be traffic on Mopac. Your coffee's going to spill. Your team is going to lose. All right. These things are going to happen. It's not all the devil's fault. Let's not give him more credit than he's due. All right. But acknowledging that we have an enemy may all be all well and good. All right. But we still have to deal with the fact that there are 85 dead priests in an entire village of people were senselessly slaughtered on a selfish whim. How in the world do we make sense of that and still hold on to our belief in God and his goodness? And for that, we're going to go to the second character or the next character in our story, and that's the psalmist. And he's the one who is able to, in the face of unspeakable evil, to rouse himself to offer praise to God for his steadfast and enduring love. Now, these events in David's life could have absolutely destroyed him. That was certainly the enemy's intent, all right? And David could have succumbed to any number of emotions, all right? Bitterness, rage, guilt, but he didn't. Instead, he wrote this. He said, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of the Lord. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Now, my favorite part of this entire psalm is in the beginning beginning of verse 8. And it's just two words and four letters. And it's where David says, but I... Now, but is a word that's really intuitive, and we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what it means. We use it to introduce a concept that contrasts with something that was just previously mentioned. It is meant to set apart uh, one thing from the other. So David starts off the psalm by describing Doag and his evil character and what's about to happen, and then he says, but I... 
All right. He's about to set himself apart from that. Now, can you imagine how hard and difficult it must have been for David not to respond to Doag in kind? He was certainly justified and he was also capable. All right. He is the one who stood and stared down Goliath. He wasn't afraid. He was a successful military commander who had access to a small army. He could absolutely have sought his own revenge against Doag, but he didn't. Instead, he wrote Psalm 52. And he said, you may be evil and destructive, but I am like a green olive tree planted in the house of the Lord. Now, I have to admit that on first glance, uh, this isn't maybe the the strongest retort. I know you're evil, but I'm a tree. (laughs) But I think if we dig a little bit deeper into what he's saying here, we'll see there's something much, much more. David didn't just say he was a tree. He said he was a green tree. And this isn't as much about the color of the tree as it is about its condition. And so some translations use the word flourishing instead of green. Amen? And he wasn't just any kind of green tree. He was a green olive tree. And an olive tree is one of the most useful trees in the world. And when you take the fruit of an olive tree and you crush it and you press it, it produces oil. And the first press produces extra virgin olive oil, which back in ancient days was used for light. And if you press it again a second time, all right, that press was used for medicine. And then if you press it a third time and you crush it a third time, it was used for soap. So when put under great pressure, the fruit of an olive tree, right, was helped to bring light, heal, and cleanse. All right? And David's not just any green olive tree right? He's a green olive tree planted in the house of the Lord, right? He knows who he is and to whom he belongs. Now, anybody besides me see that David is preaching here when he says, I'm a green olive tree in the house of the Lord, right? What he's really saying to Doag is you wanted me to wither and you wanted me to fade away, but I didn't. I'm not, and I won't. I'm alive, and I'm well, and I'm flourishing, all right? And the harder you press me, the more useful I will become. You love darkness and evil, but I will be light. You will bring death and destruction, but I will bring cleansing and healing. All right? I will not be what you are. I will reflect the glory of the God who created me. And because I belong to him, I am planted in his house. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do to uproot me. Amen? Now, because David was able to set himself apart and to see who he was and who God was, he was able to do the one thing, the only thing that we can do when we face events like David. He was able to wait. In verse 9, he says, I will wait for your name, for it is good. Now, if you're at all like me, wait is a four-letter word, all right? (laughs) Several years ago, uh, I was waiting on something. God had given me a word, a promise about the man I was going to marry. And I'm always a little hesitant to tell the story because people are like, oh, I wish God would tell me who I was going to marry. I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) No, you really don't. Um, If God gives you a word like that, it's meant to encourage. And you know what that means? It means you're about to go someplace where you're going to need encouragement, okay? (laughs) So I'm just saying. All right, but anyway, he told me that I was dating this guy. Um, He was here second service. We'll be married 11 years. Um, So I'll just tell you the happy ending. Um, There was a happy ending. But I was dating this guy. We dated about two months, and I was driving down 35, and God was like, yeah, so he's going to break up with you today. 
but don't worry. This is the man you're going to marry. So I was like, okay, cool. So later he, that night it happens just like God says, he breaks up with me. I'm like, oh, it's going to be fine. And I kneel down. I'm like, let's pray. And he's a brand new baby Christian. And he's probably looking at me like, I don't know who this crazy woman is. I'm trying to break up with you. I'm like, it's going to be fine. Um, and I thought it was, I thought two weeks would be a sufficient amount of time for him to realize how awesome I was and come back. Sure. Right. Um, but no, so two weeks (laughs) turns into two months and two months turns into two years. And, and just about every single day of that two years, I ask God the same question. When is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And every single time I asked that question, he gave me the same answer. He said, child, soon, soon. I was like, okay. So about a year and a half of asking this question and him saying soon, I finally said, you know what, Lord? I, I, I just don't think that word means what you think it means. And you want to know what he told me? He's like, yeah, I'm not the one that's confused here. So what I learned from that, right, is that God is never in a hurry, all right? God existed before time. He will exist after time. And time simply does not press on God the same way that it presses on us. And the ability to wait, all right, is one of the things that enabled David, all right, to get past this thing. But the word wait here doesn't mean simply a delayed action. And depending on the translation you use, it's used interchangeably with the word hope, which means to wait with expectation, to know that something else is coming, coming. And that something is good. And that's how David was able to do what he did and write what he wrote. That's how he was able to move beyond something that ought to have crippled him. But you know what? He knew it wasn't the end of the story and he could wait. And not only did he know it wasn't the end of the story, he knew that he was simply part of a much bigger and a much greater story. And that something else was coming, something other than the evil that he had just witnessed, something better, something good that allowed David to keep moving forward without having to know the whole story because he could trust in the steadfast love of God and was willing to wait, knowing that in time, God's goodness would be revealed, even if he couldn't see it or make sense of it in that particular moment. Now, I'm not going to lie. This is not the easiest thing for me. I'm a big picture person. I like all my puzzle pieces to fit together. And I think that's true of us in general at our time and our culture. We need, we have this compulsive need to make sense of things and to justify things. And if we can't, we reject anything that we can't reconcile with our understanding. But the good news for us, right, is that there's a third character in the story, and that's the priest. And we can see in this character God's goodness in a way that David never could because we have God's entire word from Genesis to Revelation, and we know how it's going to end. And we know that God's story is a story of redemption, and we get to see what David had to accept by faith, all right? That his story was part of a much larger story, and that God's goodness would be revealed in the end. Now, when you study how to study the Bible, you learn that the Bible isn't a collection of stories. It's not even the tale of two gods, one in the old, one in the new. It's one story, right, about one God. 
And when you learn how to study, when you study how to study um, the Bible, you see the gospel in the word from the beginning to the end, right? And every single story points to Jesus. So when I sat down to write this sermon, I was a little worried about how I was going to find the gospel in this story. So I prayed. I was like, well, God, you know, it's your book. You should tell me. So I prayed and I sit down with a piece of paper and I'm like, okay, let's think about this. I'm like, all right, we've got, I'm like Saul slash Doeg. I just kind of lump them all in there together. I'm like, and then we've got David, the psalmist, and then we've got the priest. So what happened here? Okay, so we have an innocent priest who's falsely accused, and he's killed for saving one of God's children um, from an evil, relentless king who's trying to steal his destiny. And it was literally like God just jumped over my shoulder and was like, yeah, good luck finding the gospel in that one. <laughs> and I literally laughed out loud. I was like, oh, yeah, that was easier than I thought. <laughs> But then, honestly, y'all, then I started to cry because in that moment, it hit me that this is the message. This is the message right here, that in the darkest moment, in the one of the worst stories in the Bible, I mean, God's priests were slaughtered in an entire village, and yet... That story speaks the gospel because it points to a greater priest. It points to the fact that one day there would be another high priest, a greater high priest, right? A high priest who would be the high priest forever. And he too would be innocent. And he would be led to the slaughter. All right? But he wouldn't just die for one person. He would die for all people. All right? And he would die to redeem them, not just from the evil on the outside, but the sin on the inside. And the bread that he would give us would be his body, which was broken for us. And the sword that we would receive would be his word. And the reason that I can stand up to here this morning and I can testify to this is because of my own story. So I told you earlier that I uh, went through a period of waiting. It was two years, maybe a little bit longer, for my husband. And it turns out that I wasn't waiting for him and I wasn't waiting for God. Apparently, God was waiting for me. Who knew? That's just how God is. He's too perfect to waste it. And in that two years, God had begun to do this amazing work. Uh, it didn't seem all that amazing at the time, but it, it is now. I, in hindsight, I can go back. But at the time, what he was doing, he was slowly tearing me down, which doesn't sound like a good thing, but it is when God's doing it. And he was tearing me down and he was removing everything that was comfortable and familiar. And I just knew that God was doing this thing and I couldn't figure it out. And he kept going back and pointing to this period in my life, probably the most traumatic event in my life when I was eight years old. And there was two guys who worked for my dad who did things to an eight-year-old girl that ought not to be done. And I had grown up carrying sort of the weight and the shame of this, but when I was in my early 20s in college, um, I began to get healing from this, and God had done amazing things from this, and I was really confused about why this is what God was pointing at, and he just kept going over it. And finally, one day, he said to me, he said, I need to talk to that eight-year-old little girl. And instantly, I was like, she don't want to talk to you. She's mad at you. Right? And what I realized in that moment, which I had not realized before, was there was another wound. It wasn't a wound caused by the men who had done what they had done. It was a wound that resulted from an eight-year-old little girl who thought her God was going to save her, and he didn't. All right? And God kept pressing over the next months. He kept pressing on that wound and pressing on that wound. And instead of things getting better, they got a lot worse because I realized how absolutely mad I was at God, how angry I was, how frustrated I was, because you know what? I could see my healing. One of the amazing things about my healing was I could see God's goodness coming out of that thing, but I absolutely could not see God's goodness in that thing. 
I couldn't see it. And I was mad because I'm like, God, I see your goodness and I see it in my life and I see it over and over and over. But your goodness always tastes like that bitter, nasty medicine you had to take as a child. It's going to be good for you, but it tastes bad going down. And I'm like, just once, I would like your goodness to taste like cheesecake, right? Or Quinn Smith's chocolate mint cookies. I'll take either one, all right? But just once, can it not just be good? Does it always have to be something bad and then something good comes later? And I was angry and I was mad in my heart. I could feel it for the first time, and not that I never rebelled, but for the first time in conscious memory, I was saved so early at the age of seven. I literally was so mad and shaking my fists on God. I wanted to do something intentional, some act of rebellion, but rebellion to show him how mad I was. So what I decided to do was get a bottle of wine, and get drunk. Now, that was what I said I was going to do. Now, you may think that's not the worst act of rebellion anyone could ever do, but for me, it was. I had never had a drink of alcohol, um, not necessarily because I thought it was wrong, but that was something, it was a commitment in my life, something that I did to honor the Lord, and when I was mad at God and I was trying to find a way to dishonor him, that was the one thing that I could think of, all right? Except I never got that bottle of wine, Because they tell you, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And that was true for me. Until that moment, I had never realized how persistent and present God's presence had been in my life. I had never not felt it until that moment. And in that moment, it was gone like that. And it terrified me. And instantly, I was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I start to repent. And I still, it's this deadening, deafening silence. I can feel absolutely nothing. And so then I put on some worship music, and I try to praise. And I'm trying to figure out some way, any way that I can to reestablish this connection that I have broken with God. And it gets so bad to the point where I'm like, okay, I need some big grand gesture. This is not working. I don't have any flowers. I'm not sure they would work anyway. But I'm going to get dressed up. It was a Monday night. I'm going to get dressed up in my Sunday best, and I'm going to go to church. All right? I was a youth pastor at the time. I had a key to the church. I went down there. We had an altar, and I was like, Surely if I go to the altar of the Lord to pray, he will have to hear me and he will have to forgive me. Except nothing. It was dead silence. And I sat there and I have never been more terrified in my whole entire life because I had no idea how I was going to fix this. None. And then this guy comes up. He'd gone, he went to our church and he was there for something else. And he comes up, he comes down to the altar and he says, you look like you need a hug. And I am not the huggiest person in the world, y'all, but I have never needed a hug more than I needed a hug in that moment. And so I said, yeah, I need a hug. And so he reached out and he hugged me. And I know this is going to sound corny, but y'all, when he put his arms around me, it was like the arms of Jesus coming around me. And he just whispered in my ear and he said, I've got this. Y'all, I was saved at seven. And that moment was the first moment that I really, truly knew and understood who Jesus Christ was, right? Because I knew that no matter what I did, I could not get back to him. And in that moment, all right, the gospel became the full measure of God's goodness in my life right? I didn't get up from that. I still don't know why God didn't come and save me when I was eight like I wanted to. But I got up from that moment and I knew that I knew that I knew to the depths of my toes that God was good, all right? And I knew that even though he didn't come and rescue me then, 
that there was another greater rescue. And it wasn't just for me, but it was for everyone. And it wasn't just for one moment. It was for every moment. And it was in that moment that I knew that I could say that no matter what I see, no matter what I face, that I will wait for your name, for it is good. Now I'm going to stay, I can stand here with confidence and tell you, and I've had people come up and say to me, and I understand their struggle because I've had it. They're like, I know that God is good and I know that he loves me, but I don't see it in my life, right? And I can't see it in this thing, all right? And until I had one friend tell me, until he does this, I won't know that he loves me. And I will say to you what I said to her, until you can see the love and the goodness of God, and the cross, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what he does to you or what he does for you, you will never see it. But if you can see the goodness of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, you can see it anywhere, and you can see it everywhere. And we can see it in this story. And so that is my prayer for us today, that we will see the goodness of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. And we will see that thing that David knew was coming, that something other, that something better. Let us pray. God, I thank you so much for your goodness this morning. You are a good God. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it tells us stories. And I thank you for the way that every single story points to your son, points to the story of redemption, points to your goodness. God, we're so thankful for the way that you love us and how you're good to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.